We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Captured in Cellulite on Make Time for This, probably part of the Eurostep Podcast Network and Blue Wire Podcast Network. Andrew, some of our listeners who maybe listen to some other podcasts that we do on the Eurostep Podcast Network may well be in need of uh, a pick-me-up of something light, bright, breezy, something that will make their day, their week, their you know, unexpectedly open evening schedule for the next couple of months, um, all the bit easier, all the bit brighter. And with that, we're doing something that we don't do all that often. And we're going to talk about a couple of things that aren't, you know, completely miserable. So how does that sound to you? Are you excited to do that? It sounds great, Adam. Uh, You know, Listen to all of our other podcasts, Eurostep, Win and Six, uh, Cruising for a Bruising. But sports right now uh, are painful, so we'll talk about things that don't let us down, which is movies, comedy, things of that nature. I will plug one thing. I, actually, I won't because this will not be out by the time that happens. Never mind. I apologize. Uh, movies, well, Adam. We love those movies. What was it going to be? What was it going to be? Oh, I was, I was going to say. People might uh, listen after the fact. You can You can promote ahead of time, you know? It's a live stream, though. I was going to promote Talk of the Tundra's live stream because I will be joining to talk about uh, my team before they get on to the Packers news. So I was plugging that. This will be out. This is is going out after we record, Andrews. This will be out. Okay, so tonight, Thursday, NFL Draft Day on the GSBN YouTube page. Uh, 7 p.m. is when we're going to get things kicked off. We're going to do a live stream of the draft. New Mike and Jordan, host of Talk of the Tundra. And I'll be on because uh, my Carolina Panthers, foolishly or not, <laughs> that's up for debate, traded up for the number one overall pick and will be taking a quarterback. And I will, uh, before they get on to the rest of the draft and talk about who the Packers might get with, I think, the 13th pick now, uh, I will process in real time uh, one of the four flawed QBs they can choose and then talk myself into it. Uh, so join us on the uh, GSPN YouTube page for that. 
yeah, I'll, I'll get this out ASAP so everyone has a chance to go and join you. And I'm also glad you promoted that because when you mentioned podcasts, you neglected to mention Talking to Tundra. And if I hadn't let you do that, you would have fallen out with one of your good friends. So Yeah, I was saving saving it for last just to, but to promote myself. But the good news is he will not listen to this podcast because he is not going to see either of these two things. Maybe one of them. Maybe, maybe that's right. We'll find out. All right, that's enough of that. That's enough of the network-wide business up front out of the way. What are the things we're talking about in this episode? Um, we're going to talk about Baby J, the latest stand-up special from John Mulaney, which has just landed on Netflix a couple of days ago. And we are also going to talk about a film, a film that we just really haven't had the opportunity to talk about it sooner than this. Um, I saw this before I jetted off to meet Andrew and the rest of the GSPN crew for the first time in person. It was then released straight to streaming in the US while we were all together. So in other circumstances, it could have been something that I said to Andrew the day it was out. Andrew, you're watching this now and we're doing an episode around the time. Timing didn't work out like that. And the weeks have gone by. I don't feel like people are discovering this movie. I don't see the kind of buzz that I hoped would come around this movie. And I think a lot of people would be much, much better off for seeing it. So the film is Rye Lane. It is the feature directorial debut of Rain Allen Miller, um, a British filmmaker who she primarily worked in the world of, I guess, creative agencies and then advertising. Um, I won't do free ads, but creating commercials for multiple very big, significant companies, honing something of the visual style that comes across in Rye Lane. And this script, written by Nathan Bryan and Tom Melia, retrain Alan Miller. She added some of her own kind of personal experience and spin to it in setting it in the South London areas of Peckham and Brixton, um, where she is from, and Wright Lane was born. I believe this film premiered at Sundance to start this year. And I remember seeing some very positive reviews seeing some of the buzz at that time of this being a true bread of fresh air the kind of really smart but also genuinely funny romantic comedy that doesn't come along all that often anymore i think as a genre it's probably not one we talk about all that often here on this podcast but it's maybe one of the most interesting genres to just track where it's at and how it's developing because studios kind of gave up on it Maybe the release of Rylane in the US also points to the fact that they've still given up on it um, in sending it straight to streaming. And it has become the streaming genre. It has become the thing where Netflix turns out very, very mediocre to... I, I can't speak to all of these because I don't watch them all, but it sounds like increasingly bad rom-coms that aren't landing with the audiences even in the way that their initial run and kind of relaunching the genre seemed to hit so this film comes along and I think it has moments that are genuinely romantic moments that are genuinely funny and beyond that it is one of the most outwardly creative imaginative stylish and original films I've seen in a long time and kind of blew me away that this was anyone's feature directorial debut 
to me, this is bordering on the kind of work where you're like, whoa, oh, who's this person? Because they are about to be incredibly important for a very long period of time. And in this case, in a way that like immediately is mainstream, in a way that's immediately mainstream, but is also like not uncool in any way. In fact, quite the opposite that I just think it will play for everyone. And so I remember making plenty of noise about this film to you at the time when I saw it. It wasn't even available to you. So it probably went in one ear at the other. I remember saying it's on Hulu. You need to watch that. And then I, when we were trying to cope with stuff for this episode, I was like, Andrew, that's what we're doing. So let's start with Rye Lane. Um, you watched the film. You watched the film last night. What were your thoughts or what was your response to seeing it? Um, so all that you really told me going into it, or all that I listened to anyway, was that this gives you the, I guess, I'll editorialize a little bit, the conventional structure you expect out of a rom-com, but is very stylish. And I will say, I didn't know what to expect from that, but that is an accurate description of what this film is. And it kind of blew me away because I I love going into a movie not knowing what it's about. I literally had zero idea other than that statement. And Rain Allen Miller directs the shit out of this movie. Like, it's just something that I haven't seen before in this type of setting. And you've got that uh, before sunset walk and talk aspect. I guess it's more before uh, sunrise because the, these people don't have a history to this point. Um, the walk and talk aspect and just getting to know one another th- throughout uh, a day um, and then a little bit more than a day. And it's also just uh, really funny. I mean, these characters aren't like they show the the flaws of the two main characters and all the people that are coming in and out of their life. And uh, they do that with humor. Some of these people are elevated to uh, cartoonish levels, but it never feels like something that isn't true to this world that's been created. I mean, it, it baffles me to your point that this is, not taken off more than it has because uh, you hear like there are so many like like you said Netflix rom-coms where they'll they'll be memed to death on Twitter for weeks after they debut and they just become a thing and this is something that I haven't heard of beyond talking to you about it and it's something that really deserves not just the critical acclaim it's received from from some people but it deserves eyeballs on it because like you said this is Something that when you see it, you say, who is this person? Wow, this is this is great. What are they going to do next? And I think uh, right now, Miller deserves this to be a launching pad into a like a successful and long career because it's it's worthy of that. Yeah, and I, I feel like one of the things that has just become really prevalent and we engage with this sometimes because I think it's just natural when you talk about movies week to week and a certain kind of movie comes along. And you have the reaction that I haven't seen one like that very often. I'm starting to grow wary of myself saying this is like an old school version of we, I did this with air a couple of weeks ago. And it, it it feels like there has long been this. There's a certain kind of movie they don't make anymore, which is largely true. And I think maybe the reason that someone like me or people like us end up championing when those come along, where we end up saying quite often, here's a movie that you don't see a whole lot of is because they are kind of enough of a novelty and fresh enough that you want to show from the rooftops about them. And people just complain relentlessly about the state of rom-coms. 
and relentlessly about the state of comedies in general. I mean, I'll raise my hand on that. I think all of the comedies are terrible. Yes, pretty much all of them. It's so rare to actually see something and be like, you know, what? that was really good. I laughed quite a lot. The, the standard of mainstream studio comedy has fallen through the floor. And I think increasingly just like independent comedy doesn't even quite exist. Um, it's, it's kind of a weird space generally. So when something like this comes along, you just expect, oh, this is going to be a big deal. Um, in this part of the world, it got significant push. I mean, that's not surprising, obviously, that it gets a big theatrical release in the UK. Um, it was funded by the BBC Film and BFI. So you've got major, major production kind of backing from some of the most notable names. And then it was distributed more widely by Searchlight. So you've got Disney backing there, which is obviously how this ends up on Hulu in the US. I mean, I think what's more puzzling, though, beyond that is... Like, there's so much coverage over Nancy Myers wanting to make a Netflix movie and wanting $150 million for her next rom-com and Netflix being like, you can have $130 million or nothing and her walking away. I don't know what the budget is here. I haven't been able to find the budget. I am assuming it is probably in the 5 to $10 million range, if even that. And this just feels like the kind of thing that I think, given some promotion, as just like the word of mouth, this is a great, great film. Like, this is a lot of fun. Uh, I think groups of friends could watch this, have a great time. Couples could watch this, have a great time. It's just kind of very, very broad where there's something there for everyone. And yet it's grounded in like the utmost specificity of experience of place that with the right push, I think this is the kind of thing that could take off. And all of a sudden you can have something like this that makes $50 million and everyone could feel good about that. And I think people would have a, a more interesting, diversified theatrical movie-going experience. They'll feel like there's more stuff there that is worth going to see. Um, so it's something like this landing on Hulu. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. Like, there are plenty of times where a Hulu movie gets significant buzz and it feels like it catches on. That did not happen in this case. And Hulu is always the platform that I have the toughest time. Like, I can't... I don't have Hulu. It doesn't exist here. Hulu is Disney+. Plus. Um, in Europe so I have no idea what kind of placement this got and how this is being served up to people if it was being served up to people at all but in the way that some other Hulu original films have kind of picked up energy in the past this one hasn't and based on its quality based on its genre based on its runtime these all feel like things that are really really kind of perfectly friendly to you've got a little bit of time at night and you want something to watch where it could have been a breakout streaming hit but that didn't happen either and we'll get into all of the reasons why these things should have happened why we think it's good but that's kind of the the nuts and bolts of why i wanted us to talk about it because i think if even a couple of people go and check it out after listening to us talk about it I think they'll probably have a good time and be like, you know, what? that was a better version of that kind of film than I've seen in a long time. I would like to watch more stuff like that. And even that as feedback, you know, if it's served up well on streaming as a massive hit, it's the kind of feedback that someone like Searchlight, someone like Disney could do it hearing and then making more of this kind of movie if the appetite's there. But if it's kind of buried, no one sees it, then you never get that and the whole system doesn't change at all.
Yeah, I mean, I had to I had to search for it. It was not on my homepage. I scrolled for quite a bit and then eventually searched Rye Lane to find it. Um, Hulu, <laughs> no offense to Hulu, is another app I struggle with just because of the, like, I feel like even the ad-free subscription has ads. I hate it. Uh, I did not have ads for this movie, though, but, like, it's just a, a clunky service. Um in terms of the film itself, though, yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. And um, I guess sh- should we get into like some of the, the substance and the things that uh, we, we liked about it? Let's do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put you on the spot, Andrew. OK, because. One thing that I was trying to ponder in my head, because I hadn't I rewatched it just before we recorded this um but it had been been a while been over a month since i'd first seen it and in not kind of picking up on this wave of people enthusiastically kind of tweeting about it and all these kind of glowing word of mouth coming from the u.s i started to wonder is there i know it's very much grounded in its south london roots and it has a specificity to that kind of humor and language even but I didn't think that there was any level or any kind of barrier of entry to this. Now, maybe that's just because I am so kind of close to that and I've been familiar with even quite literally this setting through TV, through film, throughout all my life that it doesn't do anything to me that's just as close to first-hand kind of. So with that, I want you to give us a broad brushstrokes approach of what this film is, what it's about. Because I, I don't know if there is anything that's like that bumps up against you as a white man from the South in a way that to me it's just kind of like, okay, well, I, I have a clear sense of, I've spent time um, I have been there, but more literally I've are, I guess, um, in a more abstract way, I've spent time there through various films and TV shows and stuff over the years where I have a sense of it. And just generally, this kind of... I don't, The way the film moves does feel somewhat more familiar to me than it might to an American audience. So I don't know if that's a barrier. You could speak to that, but also maybe you can guide us through, through the American perspective on this and we'll get to the bottom of it. I think there's zero barrier to entry. Uh, I mean... It's just because of one thing that I said to you a few weeks ago about just uh, consuming art and trying to find the the ways that as human beings, we're all alike is something that I think you can do if you look deeply enough at anything, really. Well, anything that's not hateful, obviously, but uh, this is just such a like conventional and relatable setup and story. I mean, we've got two or one outwardly heartbroken person processing a breakup and not handling it very well. Their life intersects with another person who is going through the same thing, but also hiding it to a degree and seeming like they're all the way put together. So we have these two disparate personalities with great chemistry and it's the a meat not so cute and then uh the story unfolds from there we've got the outlandish and pretentious 
uh, friend characters that are off to the side uh, that blend into the world so perfectly. And then it's just people learning about one another, flaws and all, and having that spark and connection that you have in real life and then you have in, in rom-coms. And I, I think it's just something that anyone could put on and like if you give it a chance it's something that's it's gonna land for you if you like things that are funny if you like things that are uh, adorable i think is how i phrased uh it uh at one point people that wave at boats at them i was very charmed by that we'll get to that later uh but yeah and i think one of the obviously like you said and you'll get into this later obviously because you are the one qualified to talk about this i'm joe popcorn the style and the sh- the unique way that this is shot is one aspect that's going to i think hook you in and you're going to just be interested in that if you're interested in movies but the chemistry of david johnston and vivian opara who i don't think i'd seen in anything because i didn't listen to you i haven't watched industry yet i promise i'll get around gonna, to that after see, i was gonna after say that him. i was gonna say you know if you had listened to me other stuff you'd you just you know who david johnson is yeah um and they're great and they just they they're when they're together it just seems like it makes sense and then the 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 kind of juxtaposition of their demeanors in the beginning uh work so well and then as they fall from one another you can see what appeals to them about the other and it just rings true the whole way through and that's a long-winded way of saying that this is just i think is mainstream but elevated as as movies can get now like i i if if you're telling me i you know that just didn't work for me i just couldn't get there because i'm not you know, I don't know about South London. Then I think you're an idiot. If 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 to be frank, but not to <laughs> well, alienate our listeners. I don't know. People might be idiots. That's like that's that's kind of my question too. Like I, in watching it, it never occurred to me. It just felt so broad. It felt so accessible. But then I'm like, maybe it's not. Or we will. I'll I'll go into some detail on some of the stylistic choices. But I, like. Even if I wasn't me, I don't think there's no way that just an average person who knows nothing, doesn't care about cinematic style, but they fire this up on Hulu and they're going to notice that it looks more interesting, that it looks different. They're going to notice the color. They're going to notice what in their mind might just be like some of the weird distorted images like those things immediately are there. They are popping off the screen. They're going to hear all of the kind of interesting th- things done with sound design and with music. And I I think it's like pretty impossible to be bored with this early on. And it quickly kind of picks up energy. I've mentioned already, this is an 82 minute film. Um, There's nothing about it that feels forced. And I would include with that, I think the actual, like, we're calling this a rom-com, the relationship itself, there's, at no point does it feel like the film is trying to just push these people together. It it kind of just, it literally happens very organically in a way where, sure, there, look, there are a couple of moments that are rom-com-esque, but they're, they're handled in a way that is much more kind of dignified and graceful and subtle that I think as an audience member, you get to just kind of, get caught up in the moment, enjoy that, have a laugh along with the characters. And then you realize, oh, okay, something is kind of 
very organically developing from this. I think the whole film, in terms of its style as well, it's just it seems like this run on series of very organic choices of this is something that is completely natural to if this is the story, this is where it should be. And this is how it should be framed. And this is how it should look. And it, it just doesn't feel like at any time someone was kind of shoehorning one idea or one thing into this. It is so, so smooth and seamless that it just makes for the most effortless, easy, enjoyable viewing. And that's not to kind of, I don't know, dismiss it as something that's disposable or too light either. Like, I, it's stuck with me. This is right up there with my favorite films of the year so far. Um, if not number two, it's number three. It's certainly in that kind of space. Could be one that by the end of the year, I still have it on top 10 list, or certainly it will be on a longer list because I can't see another film of this type coming along and being honestly as accomplished as it is in any way. And that is the thing with Rye Lane, is it's so accomplished in every way. The acting is great. It's really, really funny. It looks as good as any film like this has ever looked. Not exaggerating. It, that's that's really the level that Rain Allen Miller is operating at here. And the whole thing just moves. And it it's funny because it feels like what should be the perfect movie for streaming. And yet I don't feel like it's landed on streaming in the way that it would have in a theater. At the same time, it's also the perfect film to see like in a pretty busy theater on a Friday night with all sorts of people having fun. Like that just seems like a great vibe where everyone comes out of the room feeling good about themselves and enjoying what they've seen. So I don't know. It's kind of, I, I really love this film. And yes, it's the kind of film that makes me like somewhat angsty about all of this because I'm like, I don't think this is something that's like just for me to enjoy. I think this is legitimately something that everyone like we've often talked about people in your life that if you recommend something and the recommendation doesn't go poorly or that you wouldn't recommend something to like uh, this feels like something to me again, I was asking the question in case I'm wrong in case you feel it's different, but that you could just kind of watch with anybody or tell anyone to watch and I really don't think they're going to come back and be like, that was one of the worst things I've seen. I had a terrible time. It's just, it's not that. I've already recommended it to like six people. So it's... So we'll we'll find out. We'll... <laughs> yeah, the, you know, I was scarred by all the people that hated Uncut Gems that I recommended it to. Although that's not really like a recommendation movie. That's something that people would just know about through the discourse of life. So I hold no responsibility for that. Also, they're wrong. They're very, very, very wrong. Um, but Rye Lane, I did not feel that hesitance. I was just like, yeah, this rules. It's 82 minutes. It's on streaming. Like, you have no excuse not to watch it. And if you watch it, you're going to enjoy it. Um, some of the, like, I know you'll get into more details. Uh, there's one thing that stood out to me about this movie, and this is going to be a really interesting comparison I make, Adam. Remember how we talked about Decision to Leave? And I loved when he was just dropped into, uh, like, the room as a way of... Uh, like when he's staking out uh, the woman's house and it, she'll just be in there and then it places him in that area. They did this, that similar thing when there was storytelling, like one person's mm -hmm. telling them the story about their relationship and they'll just drop them into the uh, scenario like they're, Movie they're watching. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's something I... that 
could go very wrong or seem hokey, but I think it really worked and just goes with the whole vibe of the movie. And I really like that. I just wanted to call that out. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, like, that is so outwardly surreal. And this kind of speaks to the the wider points we're making. That is the kind of thing where, like, if you don't handle that perfectly well that is going to make this film into something that isn't for the kind of broader audience that you and I agree it is. It's going to alienate that kind of viewer. But all of that is handled so well and is so funny. And in ways that I kind of marvel at, I read an interview, I believe it was one for RogerEbert.com that Rain Allen Miller gave where she described um, the sequence where Yaz is recalling her breakup with her ex. And the way this is presented to us is in a theater-like setting where it's like a play and where there's like 200 doms all sitting, watching on, reacting in unison. And I I still don't quite know how they piece it together because she's like, yeah, we didn't really have a VFX budget or a budget for anything. Um, But that scene was literally filmed with David Johnson, two doubles who didn't look anything like him but were there to essentially cast shadows and he would just have to go from seat to seat to seat and shoot the scene over and over and over again doing all of his reactions and eventually they managed to composite it together into what it is which is the kind of thing that if you've got like a 50 million dollar movie it's like something that would be done all the time and it's very easy um but you don't see it in something like this you don't see it work as well and that's the technical part of it, but there's also just, like, when it does things like that, it lands comedically, and it gives, it it aligns really well with the film's energy. Um, Like, right from that opening shot of kind of tracking over these different toilet stalls, um, to, uh, I think, the kind of propulsive nature of the music, and how the music kind of just comes in and out, and moves to its own beat quite literally throughout a lot of the film while also feeling completely 
I know completely. It, you know the you know the film that the musical choices remind me of, and this is honestly about as high a compliment as I can pay. Punch Drunk Love. There's something to do. You know those kind of those off kilter sounds that John Bryan has shut the score for for Punch Drunk Love. There are moments in Rye Lane where there's just kind of little kind of short sharp bursts of music that almost have a similar effect to that, and. Then there are these moments where the music and in some cases, you know, well-known songs, um, both narratively and kind of and in ways that play more to the background of the film come in and it becomes something different and it can becomes something more propulsive. But there's I just feel like it's this kind of perfect mix of everything where I can't help but marvel at the decision making throughout. And I mean that's really what directing is. I don't want to just get too lost down a rabbit hole where it's purely Rain Allen Miller, Rain Allen Miller, Rain Allen Miller. We'll talk about the performances and I do think the craft, like uh, Olin Clarity's cinematography is incredible, very well edited by Victoria Boydell. The music is by Quez. I just think all around, everyone's done a stellar job here. Um, but I guess to pivot over to one part of the style that's kind of unavoidable because it drives the entire look of the film. The film is shot on incredibly wide-angle lenses. Basically everything, including some really tight close-up shots, which uh, Rain Allen Miller has been very kind of open about it being something that was essentially just stolen from... um, the very popular, I guess at this point, cult British sitcom... Peep Show, um, which was written and co-created by Jesse Armstrong, who people, I guess, now know as the creator of Succession. But one of the kind of devices it would have is these close-up shots with a wide-angle lens where you're not breaking the fourth wall. The character is not looking directly at the audience. They're looking just above it, and it creates this kind of... It brings you into a more intimate space, almost within the character's mind. And what Rylane does, it it integrates those kind of shots with landscape wide-angle shots that have this fisheye effect that I'm generally not very keen on, but I think works really well here. And... It's like one of those things you see the film and you're like, look, that's interesting. It's really bold. I'm kind of I'm impressed. I'm glad that someone has gone out and done that. But often even with that and with someone like me who is just desperate at all times for a movie, for a director to just show me some style, show me that you're making a movie and you're glad to be making a movie. Show me that you're making something that belongs in this form as opposed to another. The thing when I came out of this and I watched some stuff and read some interviews is the thought that went into that decision. So for example, that decision is made to showcase as much of Peckham and Brixton as possible, but in a way that is really authentic because the way Rain Allen Miller described it is, you know, when you're just out and about in your day-to-day life, I mean, a wide angle lens like this is the closest thing you're going to get to replicating your peripheral vision and how much you'll see in front of you but there's something more than that if you're in a room or you're on the street and someone's behind you you can't see them but you can feel you can kind of sense someone's there it's this idea of making something that feels much more real much more immersive and 
that is a decision that is really, really smart and a strong fit for the story and for making the best version of this film where the setting is as much a character as anything else and showcasing the kind of the culture of those places is essential to telling us about these people and why in this place, I guess, they come to be and they come to fall in love. But the reality of that is that is an absolutely brutal decision to make to try and make this movie and get it in on budget. Because what happens if you shoot with wide-angle lenses? You've got to set decorate so much more space. If you're in a room, you've got wide-angle lenses, all of a sudden you need production design to cover everywhere. If you're out in the street, you're making it much more difficult. You're bringing all kinds of things you wouldn't want into the equation. And in this case, one of the issues they did have is they shot during COVID and with wide-angle lenses, they're occasionally bringing people with masks into frame. And in that case, they'd have to stop the shot and redo it all over again because they weren't going to have the VFX budget to do too much extensive removing of people with masks. So that's a decision that is not... It's not practical in terms of... a. I believe this was a 22-day shoot. As I said, the budget is not out there. I'm guessing 5 to 10 million, but I wouldn't be surprised if I'm way overestimating that and this is just so well made that it looks like it was made for a whole lot more. Um, but it, the stylistic decisions are ones that are widening the world and, and creating that connection with the audience within the world. Like that's the dominant one, but there are lots of other decisions throughout the film. I think it's amazingly well lit. Like the color throughout that comes through your production design, that comes through your color grading, but also just the lighting is spectacular. It's funny, I've seen so many comparisons for this movie. And I think so many bad comparisons. I really think there's something bordering on pretty unique. I can't think of someone else who's making a comedy like this. I don't even know who it was, so I couldn't call them out and shame them if I wanted to. I saw one early review, or it might have been tweets around the time was that Sundance or someone was comparing this to Wes Anderson in terms of how it looks, which it does not look like Wes Anderson at all. I guess except for the fact that it's colorful, which on the one hand, I think is just, it's a really empty thing to note about the film. On the other though, I think it speaks to how unaccustomed viewers are to films that use color in a way that's bold and bombastic in that it's like that the film feels painted rather than just the cameras were pointed. This is what the background looked like. And it kind of is largely relatable to real life. Um, The before, Sunrise comparison, I think, is one of the more apt ones. I see how that takes place in terms of story. I think there have been Notting Hill comparisons. You could probably compare Shades of Paddington to, to honestly how this film moves through streets, different part of London, but in terms of capturing um, the, I guess, the visual feel of that and having it mirror more widely into the world of your movie. Um, that works out but that for me is I guess the thing that just it's like yes this is unbelievably stylish which is going to make me fall in love with it to begin with but the style is serving a purpose none of these decisions are just because I'd like my film to look like this because I think that would look cool they're taught true to the point of everything is serving the story which is the kind of the ideal way where that should be Um. Yeah the the Wes Anderson thing doesn't really uh 
uh, hold water for me. Maybe, I mean, I think a comparison to a filmmaker like Wes Anderson is something that could be done a several films into someone's career where we see if they do have a not no not with substance yeah, well, but just, I, I just as someone I that has like a singular style is what i mean not in what it actually is sure and i i don't even know if Raynell miller is going to be that kind of filmmaker like she's you spoken <laughs> about but she's spoken that like she never saw herself making a rom-com and doesn't exactly like that's not what she wants to do she certainly doesn't want to end up pigeonholed in that um, so I'm curious to see what comes next, but I do think it just speaks to how flat a lot of like modern cinema, particularly what gets to mainstream audiences is that when people see like bold, vibrant colors or pastel colors across kind of carrying from scene to scene to scene where there feels like there's something that is kind of artificial, something that is constructed to make this magical movie world they go to a place where they're like, oh, that's like what Wes Anderson does, where it doesn't it doesn't look like it at all. But I do think the examples are so few and far between of filmmakers who work in that way, where it's like pushing something artificial to the front. Like, I, I think it's it's not a good comparison, but I understand why a certain kind of moviegoer might have that kind of reaction to it. I think it is actually interesting and revealing about I don't want to say style at large, but certainly color at large throughout kind of broader mainstream Hollywood films. I love how just to talk about the substance of this film and the colorful nature of it. I love how it's established immediately via his shoes um, under the, the bathroom stall. And it just carries on from there. And we get the shoes again when they're in the art gallery. So I, I thought that was like a kind of just a subtle way to introduce the the colorful nature of the film i agree with the paddington uh comparison there especially with the way uh they move through streets um uh yeah i don't know if i have too much more to add oh there's one thing that i said last week about um or air that is something that i will find myself rewatching, and i think this is one that I, i'll probably watch it again within the week just to like show it to someone um so that's you know that 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 doesn't happen every day i don't come out of a movie being like all right i need to watch that again immediately but when it's something that grabs you like this um and is that quote-unquote breath of fresh air um yeah you just want to watch it again immediately the 82 minutes factors into that as well because i can you know I can sit down on a Friday night and know my wife's not going to fall asleep uh, halfway through the movie. So that's a, a big factor in uh, watchability in my house. So Rylane hits all those notes. So are you the kind of person who generally waves at boats, would you say? I am definitely uh, a waves at boats guy, despite uh, all the the things you know about me and how I'm <laughs> bitterly... Uh, moving through the world but if i I'd see have had you down as a wave at boats guy but it doesn't it doesn't surprise me i would have pegged you for that yeah I, I i wave at boats you know if i'm standing at the edge of the river and a party boat's going by i'm i'm throwing them a wave because they're, they're having a good day on the water maybe they're getting a tour maybe they're drinking some beverages and eating some food i don't know whatever it is i you know i, I want to show them that i approve of 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 their happiness 
I, I think maybe the the biggest compliment I give this movie is I am probably very much not a wave at boats guy. And this movie made me think about waving at boats. So I was like, you know what? Yeah, I probably should wave at boats. Why not wave at boats? And I, I think that's that's it. It's probably you know, mission accomplished for the film, too. It, like, there is, I guess, that wider sense of it just trying to uh, spread a little bit more positivity. Um, and there's there's a warmth to the film beyond everything else that, like, there's absolutely nothing saccharine about it. But it just, it works. It feels good. You come out of it and you're like, yeah. I like that a lot. Like, I, I, I would personally like... I'd, like I'll speak for myself. I feel like I speak so often for other people and the imagined people in my head who do and don't <laughs> go to movies. I would like to go and see a lot more films like this. Like there are plenty of weeks where I'll go and see four films, and you know that might be fine, but it can be like it can be a slog depending on what kind of mix of stuff you're getting. I think with more of this, there is an entire different option on the table for people and I won't speak for those people I'll speak for me and say I would like that I think to be able to mix and match that with I think things that are much steadier like the world cinema calendar will tick over all year round and I will always have something that's pretty good often will be pretty grim but like week to week I know that will be there there's going to be some big you know mainstream blockbuster possibly IP superhero thing Whatever, I'll go and see that. There's going to be whatever studio horror or studio adjacent horror is released at the time. And if maybe that's getting some good buzz, I might be like, you know what, I'll see that. And it feels like that other slot that should always be there is the comedy, is the comedy that kind of fits in this wheelhouse. And I think if I was programming a day where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to the cinema for the entire day. I'm seeing four movies. What do I want in the mix? I would love to have a film like this all the time. And it just doesn't happen, which is why we're talking about it. Because it's just, did I see a film like that last year? I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to even think off the top of my head of like my my top ten list or beyond that. Like, did I? I I don't believe so. I don't think there was a comedy. Certainly not a comedy of that ilk. Like, often there could be something that's a very dark comedy. Um that I might respond to. Yeah, there was lots of dark comedies I liked last year. I'm looking. Is there anything? No. <laughs> and I guess if I was to go to back and look at other years, and like, what were my favorite films in other years, I'd encounter similar. Part of that, and I don't want to be flippant about it, because we're giving all the credit for how well made this is, it's really hard to do this. This, to me, is the hardest thing to do, is to make like a 90 minute or in this case less perfect comedy film with broad appeal that that's the hardest possible film to make i mean not to discredit horror filmmaking i, I think that's you know something that could be very easy to make this is the hardest as genres go i really think this is the one and you see it play out with filmmakers time and time again where when you get something like this, it's like, God, wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't we might just live in a better world, Andrew, if there could be a film week that was like this? Uh, yeah, we struggled with comedies last year, I think. Um, and like you said, if there was one of these films, 
I'll take quarterly. One of these quarterly, the world would be a, a much better place. Uh, more rye lanes, but to your point, threading that needle is incredibly difficult. I've, and I've got I've got the last film I saw that compares to this in any way. Um, as in they're not exactly the same, but there's there is something there that's shared. We did a podcast and we probably had a conversation that's quite similar to this at the time. I even believe. In fact, I know that this was a direct-to-Hulu movie. I think it was Hulu. Released in the pandemic in 2020. Do you know what it is? I don't. Oh, yes, I do. I do. Palm Springs. Palm Springs. That's that's probably the last new release I can think of that has some of the energy that's here. And yep. that in, in that same way that you just come out and be like, God, isn't that fun? Why don't why don't they make more films that are fun like that? I guess that's part of the answer. Like it's through three years, um, <laughs> and and they're pretty hard to make. And in both those cases, those films honestly didn't get the treatment that they should have got to give them a chance to be like big phenomenons, big phenomenons. I don't even know if that ever got released here. I have no idea if it ever got released. It landed on Prime, I think, eventually, but I I don't think it got a theatrical release. Um. Yeah, what are you, what are you doing, movie studios? As always, a mystery. But very, very high recommendation from Bodus for Ryland. Um, check it out. Let us know what you think. I really don't think you'd be disappointed. Okay, Andrew. To take it over to the second thing we're going to talk about in this episode. Uh, John Mulaney released his latest special, Baby J, on Netflix earlier this week. Dare I say his comeback special. It's been four years since John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, which was slightly unique as a special in its own right. Uh, five years since Kid Gorgeous at Radio City. And John Mulaney has gone through very well-documented kind of variety of issues in his personal life since then. Uh, he's gone through a highly publicized divorce, uh, has started a highly publicized new relationship, had a child, and he has dealt with significant issues with substance abuse, has checked into rehab, has now, it appears, come through the other side of that in a much better, healthier place. And that largely, I say largely, I guess almost exclusively makes up for the the topics that uh, he approaches in in Baby J. So let me throw it to you first. I know you are a really big John Mulaney fan. I know you've seen John Mulaney live in person before. Um, I've don't, I don't want to put that to you as if that's just you. I am also a very big John Mulaney fan. He's one of the few stand-up comics who I just very consistently enjoy his whole thing. We might get into some of why um, as we go on here. But with all of that considered, what was what was your reaction to this or what expectations did you have going into this? What were you kind of preparing yourself for? I, it was kind of exactly what I expected. I've been, uh, watching Mulaney stuff for probably like since he started, like, uh, I even, I even tried to watch his terrible sitcom just cause I was such a big fan. Uh, when that was happening like 10 years ago, um, 
Was that the was that, that the Seinfeld ripoff thing? Was yeah, that him? it was not. It was not good. It was not good, Adam. Uh, I, uh, I just remember. I don't know if I knew who he was at that time, but it was one of those things where it was kind of it became this hot button thing where people were like amazed that he's getting away with doing this show, um, and he didn't get away with it for very long. <laughs> no, he did not. Uh, the first bit was maybe two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Uh, there, he has this bit about how him and his friend went into a diner and played uh, a Tom Jones song over and over again and watched the people around them just descend into madness. And it's so good. And that hooked me in. Um, but yeah, he, he's always been fascinating to me as he's gotten uh, a larger following because I think he's been someone uh, whose onstage persona has made people feel like they know him, the person, and they developed this kind of um, fandom of John Mulaney in all forms. And I think that's something that can be pretty unique to stand-up comedy because you're not just playing a sport. You're not playing me a song. You're, in to a degree, in the audience's mind, you're presenting yourself to an audience. And so I think a lot of people had that with John Mulaney and were kind of taken aback. And we saw some kind of interesting response from learning about all of these issues. And it, it just, I mean, I think it's, it's a lesson to say, you know, any kind of athlete performer, whatever it may be, is a human being with a side to them that you don't see. And you need to recognize them as fully formed human beings. So to see him kind of have that reckoning and, go through things in his personal life and then I kind of have the understanding standing that him being back on this stage, there's going to be some sort of expectation that he's going to get into all that happened. And then to see him do it, I thought was very compelling on that human level and very funny because John Mulaney's not going to be able to do anything without being funny. The way that you can, he went back and looked at his own demons <laughs> and just confronted them in such an amusing way. I thought, was really good. It was different, but it was a John Mulaney special. It's what I come to expect out of a John Mulaney special. Also, with just him digging into some of the real shit that he had to deal with um, in his life over the last few years and how he's changed, but also how he's still the same. Um, addiction is such a complicated thing, um, not because of, or because of how it affects the person that's addicted, but also because of how it affects affects those in their solar system. And I thought he unpacked that in a way that was both honest to how you would feel thankful and also still a little pissed off about the whole thing going along. And just a, an interesting look into the mindset of an addict and now post-recovery. But uh, yeah, I don't know what my expectations were, but it met and exceeded them, I think. Yeah, I mean... One of the things I was thinking leading up to it is this feels like a subgenre of stand-up comedy specials at this point where the comedian comes back from personal troubles, scandal, bad things they've done in their life, whatever it might be, and they try to reconcile or not with that in some way on stage in front of a crowd and a crowd that are, you know, paid up <laughs> customers. They are there. They are ready to embrace that. And there are different ways of going about that. Um, I feel like, did we talk, maybe it was the previous iteration, we might have talked about the um, Aziz Ansari special, um, which 
kind of took the complete opposite approach to this. Like, if I remember correctly, it was black and white and was very muted and very intimate. And... Spike Jones directed, was that right? Yes, correct. And, you know, in some places wasn't that funny, but was kind of very, I don't know, like as open and honest as it could be, which is possibly what was needed too. Uh, I believe I have not seen, and I don't know, I don't believe there's probably a whole lot of um, remorse in there, but I believe that Louis C.K. has had to do versions of this on his specials that I think you can now only get directly from his website. Um, it's just it's it feels like something I guess with the wave of what has affected comedy, and I say that groaning because what has affected comedy for me in recent years is that nearly every time I fire up a special, I have to listen to some loser who I want to make me laugh instead whine and whine and whine about what they can't say or what they can't do or no one could be funny anymore, and. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because I think everyone could be plenty funny if you don't just spend the whole time telling the audience what you can't say anymore or then, you know, treating, I don't know, what I guess many are seeing as low-hanging fruit as pinatas and picking on trans people or whatever it might be. Like, there are comedians who I watch their specials and I quite like a lot of the stuff I've seen and it comes along and it's like, God, is this is this what it's come to? People can't it's like is comedy dead not because of the reason all these people want to pronounce as being dead but just because they can't find another thing to talk about it's incredible so one of the most energizing things for me about watching this is it is not about like it's not really even about what it could have been i feel a lot of other comedians would have made this special about how the public image of them you know they would have purely leaned to the I'm nice guy John Mulaney, you know, and this is what you know about me now. And the whole show would just have been that would just have been that. And I don't even think Mulaney really does a ton on that. And that to me was a big win because immediately you're just getting a chance to make your audience laugh, not make some wider cultural point that at this point has just been beaten over the head, and honestly, I don't believe is all that true. Just go back to you know the bones of a stand-up comedy special. And what's funny, and often what the best stand-up specials are is drawing from personal experience, and this has been John Mulaney's personal experience in the past couple of years, and that is what he spoke about. I admire the fact that he is. I I do think deals with a lot of his head-on, but it never. It never reaches a place that is dark. Part of me thinks it could have been more interesting if he pulled that back and we saw a little bit more, or there were just a couple of beats where that didn't happen. But ultimately, this is a comedy special. And I think he made a really, really good one um, that I enjoy consistently throughout. And I think in a couple of peak moments, just had me absolutely dying laughing. Dying, dying laughing. So... I was very impressed by this. I was kind of eagerly awaiting it for quite some time because I love a good stand-up comedy special. I feel like there's more comedy specials than ever before and there are less good ones because they're all, they're all the same. And give me people who have different things to talk about and approach things in a different way, which I guess was part of the Mulaney stick to begin with. <laughs> um, but... This landed for me and I had a pretty good time.
Yeah, I agree. Um, the there's one bit I won't spoil that you and I both just like. I I watched this with Sarah, and she was she did not find that funny at all, and I was howling, and she's just looking over at me, and I'm like, this this is just getting me right, and I right in my funny bone, I guess we'll call it. But yeah, um, there is like because we we won't spoil that, but people do. This is captured in celluloid. There is a movie. There is a reference to a famous movie. An, an actor, right? Um, that is very, very funny. That is tied up into what is just an objectively hilarious situation from Mulaney's time in rehab. Uh, I again, including I guess the the characters involved, both the 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 imagined character and the real life person. It's just it's such a funny setup, um, which I guess part of this like there are probably some elements that as close as anything ever has from Eleni that wrote themselves, but it's so well performed and just the image, but also the sound of it is the it's the combination of things are just so hilariously funny. I laughed harder than I've laughed in a very long time at that stretch. I'm seeing that Oscar winner do stand up in a few months, actually, Adam. So should be a, an interesting time. Um, and is the that real? Are his... you doing that? Yeah, my friend texted me the other wow. day. He was like, he was like, "This guy's coming to th- this comedy club. I bought his tickets." So I was like, "All right." The real person, not the bit. Ah, uh, that's disappointing. I mean, if if he comes, we'll talk. About, we'll like talk a... about... Well, yeah, he's been, yeah. he was in the, he, the the person in the bit. Sorry for everyone who hasn't seen it. I hope this just makes you go and watch it on Netflix. The person in the bit was here doing like an evening with oh. very recently, where okay. if you wanted to spend like two and a half grand, you could get in the room and maybe get a photo taken. And I guess he tells some stories. So that's I thought you meant there might have been something like that that someone had got you tickets for. Um, but no, the other person. Okay, well that that works too. That could be fun. Yeah, it'll be a good time. Uh, but also the bits around his intervention and just humorously peeling back the curtain on how much of an asshole he was to the people in that room. But then the aftermath of being like, "Well, now this is just the rest of my life." That that whole those are the two bits that just killed me the most. Um, yeah, well that that's one that I will spoil, which I thought was a really good joke too, which is like. Yeah, that he he just wishes it was like two people or four people, <laughs> but the fact that it's twelve people means like there's twelve people that any time he has dinner with for the rest of his life, he's gonna be like, yeah, no, this one's on me. I I get this one. You saved my life after all. It's a that's a very relatable impulse too. I think it's like, oh god, this is just too much. Um, yeah, and it the people that keep putting out comedy specials where it's like, let's just find some marginalized group to attack and let's just latch onto that. It's just been so exhausting that when something like this comes well, out or let, let's actually, you know, I don't have a problem with naming some of the specials. Like obviously everyone knows that Chappelle is part of this Chappelle and the, the, the development of, I guess his comic persona really across his Netflix specials. I guess you can almost kind of yeah. tie it to that, which in a lot of ways is also wild that this is the platform, maybe the most widely available mainstream platform that exists when that's the direction his comedy veered into but even like obviously very good friend of Chappelle but I always felt there was something that's a bit different to the comedy 
Chris Rock had a special out recently, um, which again was very noteworthy and people were watching for all sorts of reasons, mostly the Will Smith stuff, and I'm addressing that. But there, again, there are moments in that where I'm like, why are you, why are you doing the bits about cancel culture? Like, what, what is the need for this? You had the most, again, I think it's a great example. And maybe part of that speaks to like, you, it, I could just brush it off and be like, you know what? It's easy for Mulaney. He's had this really eventful couple of years and coming to the other side. And if he wants to get back to work, a comedian's job is to kind of mind that. For material i think the flip side of that is chris rock though who still is so angry in his special and basically only does like three or four minutes on it at the end of the special when everyone's come to see it it's like you could do a whole show and you could spin that off in all kinds of interesting ways and talk about your relationship to celebrity and how it's changed throughout your life instead it becomes a cancel culture thing and it's like this is like there are indeed rooms full of people who are laughing when you see these specials. Now, I know stand-up comedy is one of these interesting things where in the room, you could find yourself laughing at things that if you were at home, you'd be like, eh, yeah, it's fine. Like, there is just an element. There's something almost natural to that. Uh, not speaking to, like, the deeply offensive and hateful things, but speaking to just, like, a mediocre joke lands much better in a room of 100 people, 500 people, 2,000 people, 10,000 people who are all there, primed, ready, having paid money, looking to laugh than it does, like, on a Thursday night at home on your couch. But I, it's just, it, I think it's a really troubling trend because you've got people who are very funny who are just not, not trying to be funny. Like, they're so lost in this idea of what comedy is railing against that they're killing comedy in their own way. You know, just put out good stuff, you know, put out good, funny material. People will laugh. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I don't think it's that complicated. And it, it's so much of what I really like comedy wise has leaned. It's well-worn territory on this podcast. We've just touched on it too. It doesn't happen very often in movies. Um, it doesn't happen anywhere near as often as it used to with stand-up. It's TV. And it's stuff that's weirder and more surrealist. It's like Nathan Fielder and Tim Robinson and John Wilson. You know, it's like people like that. That's That's where I go to. I'm like, these are the people doing stuff that is just like outwardly really funny. And at times, like John Wilson could come into contact with the real world and it's like a hot button topic, but understands how to play that in a way that is just completely removed from it and is purely for comedic value. Nathan Fielder in the rehearsal, there are lots of things that could and did become wider talking points, but how are they played in the show? Like what is the, the intent behind it? So many people have just moved away from that, that it's nice. It's nice when you see, the stand-up special and it's not just railing against the world if anything this is kind of railing against himself um laughing at himself but also with with the ability to still put himself back in that place at that time and i guess curse his friends and curse everyone around them that he's here in this place and everything is fine which is obviously it's it's a bit and it's a joke but it's also he's an addict and like He's being, I think, pretty open about all of that in terms of experience. Maybe not to the emotional depths, but I do think for like the comedic purpose of it, I, he's being pretty transparent.
Yeah, the only other like really famous now he's doing arenas, uh, mainstream comedian that's like really consistently lands for me when they come out with a special and isn't like you said railing against the world, uh, is Nate Bargatze, um, who's pretty clean as a comedian. I mean, something as simple as uh, uh talking about how you hate interacting with people so much at Starbucks that if if they misheard your order and you got it wrong, you just throw it away and go to another Starbucks. That's why there's so many Starbucks. Um, or the bit about having to psych up your daughter to tell her your dog's about to die and then it lives for another year. And then you told her every day. And then when she gets the news, she acts like it's the first time she heard it. So uh, like there, <laughs> there are ways to be funny without just being a, an angry person. Um, but uh, yeah, also uh, another special, like I, now I'm just like suggesting things to watch that aren't That's okay. like, uh, I was like the Mark Maron special that came out on yes, HBO Max, which we both love. Yeah, and it's similar, uh, d- similar but different. Him mining his personal tragedy for, you know, catharsis for him, and then also some pretty funny jokes like the sh- "Should I take a selfie or not?" That was like oh, uh, so so funny, it, just so great. funny. Like and and again, like and it's like unthinkable trauma, like unthinkable just yeah. tragedy stuff he's dealing with, and. I don't know, like maybe maybe that's as simple as he is someone who is more politically aligned than the way that you or I think, or more if I don't using politically is probably the wrong way because that just makes right. it loaded. But I don't know, he has values that seem to be closer to the values that people like you and I would share than some other comedians. But I it's not like I go into comedy looking for my values to be reaffirmed. In fact, I think I could I could and have over the years seen plenty of things that someone would say and you're like, oh, you know, I feel bad for laughing at that or that's not quite what I think, but I can see like that's a really good joke. Like that's a really well-constructed joke or there's something really clever going on there. And I I think a lot of the kind of just the wider, I'm going to talk about comedy dying and it's because none of you people allow comedy to survive. That is not, clever or thoughtful and it's taking away the effort of let's actually construct you know what is funny or interesting about everyday life as opposed to everyone becoming you know the angry old man raging against the machine that's not that's something that works great for a certain type of comic but there are lots of comics that that doesn't work and you just become something that's pretty boring and flat yeah but uh, yeah, go watch uh, watch Melanie's new special because it's it's not it's not that, and it's uh, we'll say it again, like we said at the beginning of the podcast, a breath of fresh air on your Netflix algorithm. There you go. We've served up two things, um, one of which is streaming worldwide, one of which is not. Um, I think it's streaming most places that aren't the UK and Ireland, so almost worldwide. Um, check them out. Check them out. They're funny. They are, you know, lighthearted. I think you'll have a good time. We need more of it, Andrew. We need more. Maybe we can endeavor to provide more stuff like that to talk about, but we can only do it when when the system gives us it, you know, is part of it. There's no shortage of great films, but I do think it's can be very tough to 
to find great comedy. Like maybe it's, I don't know if you're even aware of this film. You probably are because the trailer went pretty viral when it went out. Like maybe we'll find ourselves doing an episode about that Will Ferrell dog movie soon. Do you know the uh, one where, where the dogs talk and they like hump yeah, garden I remember, gnomes? I, I, remember... I feel like I feel like we won't, but maybe we will. Yeah. The GSBN member that you would expect linked it in. Oh, our, he, uh, he, I think he was he's all in for that one. He'll be at the theater for that. Uh, maybe it's good. It's... Maybe it'll be good, but it also could be absolutely terrible. Like, and that's that's the game. Like, that's what's yeah, there's also... that's also that's what studios fun. Like that kind of movie, honestly, one does seem rarer than it used to be. So much so that when I see that trailer, I'm like, oh, cool. Well, they're doing that. I guess they'll see it. Um, but that still is what someone is green lighting as. Oh, yeah, we need a summer comedy. This is what people like, right? And maybe they do. Maybe the box office will be colossal. It'll be a massive hit. I don't know. We'll find out. Will Ferrell's got some series that is in production or about to be in production now, too. It's some kind of real life thing. And it struck me as odd. Now I can't remember what it is. Um, the system, Adam, the system. The system only dreams in total darkness. That's, I think that's a good way to close it. All right. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and make time for this. Uh, we'll be back next week. Don't know exactly what we'll talk about just yet, but we'll work that one out. We worked it out this week, and we'll do the same next week. Um, make sure you subscribe to the rest of our GSPN podcasts, or at least check them out. So that's your set podcast network feed for all things Milwaukee Books. The season is over. Doesn't mean the podcast stopped. There is already, I haven't listened to it myself yet. I wasn't on it, but uh, a post game five, post books playoff run uh, reaction episode that I'm sure is somewhat cathartic. I won't go so far to call it therapeutic because it may not be. Um, I don't know if Rohan shouts or, you know, who, who could tell? Who could predict? I think we were all kind of beaten down, so probably not. But if you want to dive in and hear what others have to say about the book's postseason ending, you've got that there. We'll have all the coverage of whatever comes next throughout the offseason. Uh, we'll have our longest run-up to a draft that we've had in quite some time. We'll have free agency. I'm sure we'll be talking about trades. We'll have all kinds of other stuff. So book season is over. The book's content does not stop. Cruising for bruising. Milwaukee Brewers, they are in right in the heart of their season, just trying not to lose arms and limbs as they travel from city to city and from game to game. And they're very banged up right now, but they're still very good. I believe half a game out of the lead for the National League. So hopefully, hopefully they stick around there, they get healthier, and the Brewers' journey is one you should be on this year. You can listen to Andrew and I talk about them all the time, I'm, really, I'm... two, three times a week. I'm just waiting for the news that like Bernie broke his foot on the slide. On the slide, well, yeah. We we need some more homers to even risk that one. So, um, that's that might be something. Oh, we it could be a trade off we have to make at some point. Bernie might have to be sacrificed. Um, last but by no means least, talking to Thunder for all things Green Bay Packers. If you're still catching up on Aaron Rodgers' trade reaction. Jordan and Newmark have an episode on that. They will have all of your NFL draft content from a Packers perspective. And as Andrew advertised up top, live stream for the NFL draft tonight. Andrew will be joining them for part of that. What time's that all kick off, Andrew? 
Uh, seven o'clock central, I believe. Seven, seven o'clock central on the Eurostep Podcast Network YouTube channel. Okay. Until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>